and welcome. My name is Dr Nadia Imran and I am an ST5 trainee in general adult psychiatry. Today we are joined by Dr Brian Kidd, who has been an advisor to the Scottish and UK government since 1998 in numerous roles, including being the independent chair of the Scottish Drug Strategy Delivery Commission from 2010 to 2015. He also won the NHS Scottish Doctor of the Year Award in 2007. Since retirement, he is currently an independent consultant working with a range of organisations bringing forward innovative solutions to address overdose deaths. We are going to be discussing drug deaths in Scotland with Dr Kidd. Welcome, Dr Kidd. Hello. Hi. So, Dr Kidd, what is the current situation with drug deaths in Scotland and how does this fit with the international picture? Okay, well, um, uh, basically there are, there are national reports which have been produced in Scotland for the best part of 20 years, which have tried to make sense of the, the numbers of drug-related deaths occurring in the country. And um, the, the, the situation in Scotland remains that drug deaths are high. Um, I'll, I'll go into the numbers in a, in a moment, but I think it's important to recognise that uh, when we're counting something like drug deaths, um, there is an issue around definitions. Um, who are we counting um, uh, and how are we able to compare numbers from one country to another, for example? So just to, before I give you the numbers for Scotland, um, there are international reports from the, the UN Office uh, on Drugs and Crime, UNODOC, for example, which reported in 2015. And there's also reports from the European Monitoring System, the EMCDDA, which reported in 2017. Now, the MCDDA only looks at deaths in 15 to 64 year olds. So immediately they are going to be reporting on a smaller sample than the sample that is reported on uh, in Scotland and the rest of the UK. The UN and the EMCDDA also state that um, a number of countries in um, regions and, 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 um, and blocks within the world don't report particularly on drug deaths for all sorts of reasons. The UK has got highly developed systems for collecting this information. So our information is probably more accurate and therefore um, will not under report the way that the rest of the world often will. Um, so get on to the numbers in Scotland. Um, in the 2020 uh, numbers, which were reported in 2021 by National Records Scotland, there were 1,339 deaths, uh, which would be defined as um, a, a drug-related death. Now, in the same period, if we were to take definitions that were to do with drug poisoning but not controlled drugs, there would have been nearly 1,500 deaths in Scotland. So the difference is nearly 200. Um, likewise, if we had taken the EMCDDA report um, um, definition, we would be down to around about 1,100 deaths in Scotland. So it would be 200 less. So that gives you an idea of the variation that can happen just from definitions alone. But the number that is reported in Scotland is the same number that has been reported for some years. So we are able to compare year on year on year and to see what the trajectory looks like. And the bad news is that there's been an upward trajectory really since the year 2000. Um, the mean rate um, in Scotland is something like 21.2 per 100,000. Um, um, but that varies depending on um, you know, what area you're in. 
It maps very well against deprivation areas. So the most deprived areas, for example, Greater Glasgow and Clyde, will have a rate of 30.8 per 100,000, whereas the less deprived areas will have much lower rates. Now, that gives you a, a, um, a rate of something like um, 21.2 per 100,000 compared to the rest of the UK, which would have a rate of something like 6.5 per 100,000. So it's something like three to four times the rate of the rest of the UK. And that's comparing close to like to like. Um, so it's clear we have got a problem in Scotland. Some people have said that the trajectory has been increasing since 2013. Um, uh, so, in fact, the, the, although there was an increase from 2000 to 2013, it became steeper in 2013. So that's the situation. High rate, high trajectory. Wow, that three to four times the rate statistic is shocking. I wonder, Dr. Kidd, what does the literature and evidence say about drug deaths in Scotland? Well, as I say, the NRS report is, is very detailed. So it tends to report by area, by council area, by health board area and so on. But if I give you some sort of overall headlines, um, uh, most of the, the uh, demographics don't change very much. So men continue to be more likely to die than women. Um, although it would appear that that difference is changing, it used to be three or four times. It's now down to two to three times. So women are catching up on men. Um, there's a change in the mean age. So if we go back 20 years, the mean age of a drug death in Scotland was around 32. The mean age is now 43. Um, this has led to um, some speculation about what that might represent. Uh, and people have started talking about the, the train spotting generation being the people that are responsible for the increase in drugs deaths. Um, I, I, the data doesn't support that. But what it does show is that they, there is an older group who are now appearing in the drug deaths data. And one of the arguments around the train spotting generation is that it may be that people have been essentially kept alive by harm reduction services, but um, continue to be physically very unwell and um, put themselves at more risk and so on. Um, so it may be that they're just dying now. It certainly isn't a sufficient enough difference to, to, to cause the massive increase that's being talked about. Probably far more important is the link with deprivation scores. Uh, the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, or SIMD, goes from one to five, with one being the most deprived and five the least deprived. And if you live in the most deprived area in 2000, you were 10 times more likely to, dry, to die as a result of a drug death than those who live in the least deprived areas. If you come forward to 2020, that difference is now 18 times. So it's nearly... Um, doubled. So the issue there is, um, a, is, is about a, a developing a health inequality which continues to develop in Scotland. And as I'm sure you know, and, and people who listen to this will know, health inequalities mean that there are, the most deprived people are more likely to suffer from all sorts of health um, conditions. So they're more likely to have cancer, they're more likely to have heart disease, they're more likely to experience mental health problems and so on. So it, it could be that drug deaths are simply a reflection of health inequalities. And it's always been noticed that, that the, the rates of drug death map directly to the SIMD scores around Scotland. So I think it's an important thing to be aware of. 
Other things that we know around drug deaths in Scotland are that the vast majority of them have always been polydrug deaths. It's very rare to get someone dying as a result of taking just one drug. 93% in 2020 were as a result of more than one drug and only 7% took just one drug. And the drugs are what you would expect. They're more likely to be opioids, such as heroin, morphine or methadone. About 90% of deaths contain opioids. Benzodiazepines, and that includes drugs that we would be well aware of, like diazepam and tamazepam, but also new benzodiazepines like etizolam. And that's about 73%. So opioids and benzodiazepines, very common. Then you drop quite a bit to drugs like gabapentinoids, 37%, cocaine, about 34%. And there have been changes in the recent past with regard to the, 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 um, the, the rates of these different drugs in drug deaths. So um, if you take street benzodiazepines, for example, um, they were present in um, something like 58 deaths in 2015, and now 879 deaths. So they've gone up something like 15-fold in terms of the, the numbers of deaths that are associated with these drugs. But other drugs that perhaps don't get so much publicity but have also increased are drugs like methadone. Methadone was present in 251 deaths in 2015, but was present in 708 deaths in 2020. And um, I think there's an interesting point here. Um, there tends to be little emphasis put on drugs like methadone because, of course, methadone is a drug which is known to be very helpful in the management of opioid dependency. And there's a strong evidence base for it reducing drug-related harms. But one of the harms that it is associated with methadone is obviously drug death. And since about 2011, um, methadone is prominent in drug deaths. In 2011, in fact, 57% of drug deaths uh, were associated with methadone. And that tends to result in, in, in particular political pressure for people to raise questions about whether methadone should be prescribed or if it is prescribed, how it can be prescribed more safely. The other thing I'd like to say about the drugs that are found on um, uh, testing after a post-mortem is that there is an interpretation taken in terms of um, the, the drug screens that are done. Um, so a pathologist will decide whether a drug is simply present in the sample or whether it is implicated in the sample. There is clearly a lot of uncertainty in that, and it's very unlikely that that's a standardised process. So um, there, there may be bias brought into the reporting of these things. So I think if a drug is present, it may be important. Um, I, I would be less concerned about um, the use of the term implicated because it's a it's a it's a judgment um, and may be influenced by dogma. So um, these are the main features, I think, of the of, of deaths in Scotland at the moment. It might be worth just raising one other thing, which is these are all factors. These are all um, if we were describing the population, we would be saying they're more likely to be men, they're more likely to be deprived, they're more likely to be of a certain age, they're more likely to have certain drugs on board. But the reason that we want to know these things is because we want to work out whether we can predict death. 
We want to know what factors have got some kind of predictive value. And as um, doctors, psychiatrists working with substance users, just like when we're trying to predict dangerousness in a forensic patient or suicidality in a patient who's depressed, we would like to know whether these people are at high risk of death. And the reality is it's very difficult to find out which of these factors has much in the way of predictive value. Just to give you an illustration of that, I've done at least two studies which have looked at quite large numbers of um, subjects and tried to predict death doing various statistical analyses. So, for example, um, my doctoral thesis, which was submitted in 2013, looked at 623 methadone prescribed patients and followed them up over seven years. And in that seven year period, there were 45 deaths. We found a lot of factors which seemed to have a statistical association with being dead. But then when we put these into a regression analysis, um, uh, that these factors actually fell away and there was very few of them that actually predicted the outcome. And these were age, physical state, um, driven by medical admissions to hospital and whether or not the person was actually engaged in a high quality treatment program. And you could have indicators of that, like whether or not they'd had drug screens done, whether or not they'd attended appointments, things like that. So it felt like we had some idea of things that may be helpful in determining whether or not someone was likely to die. But when we then did a cross-validation analysis and used the same predictive model in a novel data set, we found that it was not generalizable. So even when we did very good statistical analyses on a large sample over a long period of time, what we found was not a generalizable finding. So a lot of what people tell you is important. It's not necessarily as important as you might think. Not unlike suicide, if you think about it. The things that predict suicide are far um, less important than people tell you. Similar studies have been done with control groups. So, for example, in Scotland, we did a study looking at 311 drug deaths over six years. So these are people who have died. And we used um, a novel system in Scotland where we're able to generate controls using the community health index number. So we, we created four controls for every dead person. The controls were not dead over the study period. The dead people were obviously dead during the study period. And we tried to find predictors. And some of the predictors were what you would expect and were confirmed. So, for example, mental health comorbidity, interestingly, one of those areas that Scotland does not do very well in, was a strong predictor of being dead in the study period. Whereas some of the things that you would expect to predict whether they were going to die in the study period were not predictors. For example, were they on a medical prescription or had they attended A&E with an overdose? These are things that you would have thought would predict death. So um, it's important to recognise that um, a lot of um, the advice that's been given to try and affect drug death in Scotland over the last 20 years doesn't tend to be as evidence-based as you might think. Um, and um, sometimes it's being driven for other reasons. Sometimes it's dogmatic. Sometimes it's sociopolitical. Um, and as clinicians, we are still struggling to understand the specific factors that might help us to recognise the person coming into our clinic who's likely to experience a drug death. Thank you. You raise a very interesting point there about appraising the literature ourselves 
and, and making our own judgment based on what's available. Bearing all that in mind, what are the challenges in helping patients with addiction? Well, um, uh, I think it's important to recognise that, like most of mental health, our, our um, treatment population are sometimes difficult people to engage with. Um, they, they will have a, a lot of behavioural difficulties sometimes. They will have social difficulties. They may be in parts of the community that it's very hard to reach into. They're not particularly skilled sometimes at using services particularly effectively. So there's lots of reasons that, um, that uh, it's difficult for people to engage. Um, the field itself is highly politicised, again, not unlike the rest of mental health. Um, so what tends to happen is it becomes a, a big headline when there is... Um, um, a concern about loss of political capital. And in Scotland, that's often to do with drug deaths or it's to do with um, political debates, dogmatic debates about treatment approaches, whether we should be supporting harm reduction or whether we should be supporting abstinence orientated approaches, for example. Um, this is a group of people who are excluded. You know, they, they, we've already mentioned that they, they are, are, are they tend to be in the highly deprived areas, but they are actually excluded from care agencies traditionally. It's it's not well known, I think, that in Scotland um, the, the 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 commissioning of services, the national strategic approach to the commissioning of services, was not actually within the Department of Health at all. It was in the Justice Department. Um, and um, that says something about politically how substance misuse is viewed. It's viewed as a justice problem rather than a health and social care problem. To its credit, the Scottish Government has changed that and, and substance misuse now sits within health. Um, um, uh, but that's a, I think it says something about the social exclusion of this group. Then there's the whole issue of whether services are funded. Um, it's not well known nowadays because um, um, people who were involved at that time are now retiring like me. But when I came to Scotland in 1996 as um, the first consultant in addictions in NHS Fourth Valley, half the health board areas in Scotland didn't have any specialist doctor in addictions at all. Um, places like Highland, Fife, Fourth Valley, um, and the Borders uh, didn't have doctors who um, had a specialist interest in this. And it was delivered by generic doctors or by nurse or uh, social work led services who were involved in managing people. There tended to be specialists in the conurbations. And there had been no funding for these services and funding, real funding, meaningful funding for the development of services to actually meet the need of the population didn't occur in Scotland until 2000. Um, uh, in fact, we didn't know the prevalence of drug problems in Scotland until after 2000 when the first prevalence study was done. Interestingly, the prevalence has not changed in the next 15 to 20 years and sits at around 55,000 people who you would expect to require some kind of treatment in Scotland. To put that in context, I worked in Tayside latterly, and in Tayside we would have expected to have about 5,000 people as our target population with illicit substance problems. When I took over the service in 2003, there were 817 people in contact with services out of that target population of 5,000. Um, there was significant investment in Scotland from the millennium, um, and um, by the time I had left my post in 2018, there were about two and a half thousand people in contact with services in Tayside. So we were now getting close to 50 percent of the target population. 
that capacity change reflects the investment in services. So underfunding will have been one of the issues. But funding is only one part of commissioning of services. Um, it's important that services are commissioned to actually meet local needs. And one of the um, consistent criticisms in Scotland is the poor commissioning of services. They have had you know, commissioning arrangements in place in Scotland where they try to um, create a situation where a local planning arrangement has got budgets which it uses for its local planning purposes. Um, but the expectation has always been that health and social care will work in concert. So budgets that used to be, sit in local authorities and budgets which sat in the health board would be brought together in a collaborative way to meet the needs of a population. Um, in Scotland, that was attempted in a number of um, configurations until eventually, by law, a, um, a new um, arrangement called the Health and Social Care Partnership was, was arranged. And that now is, a, is a, a, an entity which can hold budgets and commission services. But that's relatively new. What that tells you is that commissioning is, is difficult to do, not just in addictions, but also in old age, in mental health. Um, for young person services and everything else. And um, there have been numerous reports to the Scottish Government that the quality of commissioning in substance misuse has been poor. So um, there have been a number of kind of um, endemic challenges with regard to um, delivering services. But there are also issues for doctors and the services we work within. And there is advice about how to best do this. Hopefully, um, people who listen to this will be aware of the, the National Treatment Guidelines or the so-called Orange Guidelines. The Orange Guidelines is a clinically-led guideline which was started by clinicians in the field in 1986 when substance misuse started to be perceived as a real problem, mainly because of HIV. So it had really been ignored for the last 20 years. HIV came along and a few doctors who recognised the need to treat people properly got together and produced essentially a pamphlet, which was the first Orange Guidelines. And after that, all the governments in the UK supported the creation of these guidelines and the updating of them, reflecting the evidence base and the changes in, the, in our understanding of substance use um, uh, across all the UK nations. So the most up-to-date one is from 2017, and it is a very detailed document. And for the first time, it also um, critically appraised the literature. None of the previous guidelines had. So we so the literature was graded the same way it would be in a nice guideline or a sign guideline uh, in order to help people to understand the quality of evidence that's there. Of course, what that does, though, is it exposes the fact that we lack level one and level two advice in our field. Um, a lot of the advice is level three advice and um, is based on evidence which is descriptive data at best. So um, there is still a, a strong need for more research. Um, and um, uh, much more evidence to support the delivery of clinical services. And that's a challenge for psychiatrists because academic psychiatrists, especially in the addictions, are a dwindling breed. You touched briefly on the orange guidelines. With that in mind, how do we approach the pathway of helping a patient with addiction? OK, um, I think that um, stepping back slightly, when one is trying to... Um, 
discuss with people across the country how, what, what is required for substance misuse. It's important to recognise that um, areas have got different stages of development, and that tends to reflect the nature of their problem in a local area. If we take the Scottish example, in uh, Edinburgh, HIV was identified in injecting drug users in the mid-1980s by a GP called Roy Robertson. In association with that, um, Edinburgh developed specialist addiction services at a very early stage. Um, uh, and these specialist services and methadone prescribing were the norm um, in Edinburgh. I did my GP training in that practice in, the, in 1987 and um, GPs were prescribing methadone for substance users then. I went to Glasgow to do my, my basic training from 1989 and no methadone prescribing was taking place in Glasgow at all. That's a motorway 40 miles away. Um, so 40 miles away, there was absolutely no methadone prescribing. I'm sure there were a few GPs who were prescribing the odd pre prescription. Um, by 1994, public health experts in Glasgow had started to push for um, drug treatment services and couldn't get psychiatrists interested because psychiatrists didn't do that kind of thing. Addiction psychiatrists in Glasgow were mainly dealing with alcohol problems and weren't really interested in managing drug problems. So general practitioners started prescribing and the Glasgow Drug Problem Service was created in 1994 and is now one of the largest um, opioid prescribing services in Europe. So um, the, the, the difference requirements in each of the different areas reflects the history. The reason Glasgow didn't get the service when Edinburgh did was because it didn't have HIV. Uh, and it, it was HIV that drove forward those services. Um, and it was HIV that started the minimal um, investment in services under the Conservative government in the mid-1990s. And then it was new Scottish governments who started to invest much more comprehensively in services. So the first Scottish Parliament agreed to invest £100 million in substance misuse services in its first Scottish strategy for substance misuse in 1999. That was the first major investment in Scottish addiction services ever. Um, so um, each of the areas starts with a, a, a different backdrop, a different set of services. Um, and it's important to recognise that when you're putting together a pathway. The pathway of care is really about trying to make sure that when a person has got a substance use problem, whatever that problem is, they can hit services quickly and start to address their problem quickly. So the opportunity to intervene is not passed. This means that services need to be available, for example, in general hospitals where a, an injecting drug user might be an inpatient with an abscess. So liaison type services that are available um, to assess somebody when they're in the inpatient unit or in the mental health unit where a person might be having a withdrawal syndrome from benzodiazepines and may be admitted with a, an altered mental state. So access is a key part um, of, uh, of, of the pathway. That can be delivered in lots of different ways and uh, the, it would be too much to talk about all the different models that one could try. But certainly third sector organisations and primary care based organisations are one of the ways across the UK that these kinds of services have been made available. Um, in, this, in the context of drug deaths in Scotland, interestingly, you may be aware of the debate with regard to injecting rooms. One of the um, 
issues um, in the UK is that it is illegal to have a room where a person can bring in their injecting equipment and inject their drugs in a safe environment, a clean environment, where there might be staff available to resuscitate them should they overdose. And what's happened in Scotland is that some third sector organisations have taken it on their own um, bat to, um, for example, have vans that they drive around that people can get into and inject safely. You could argue that's a that's an argument that that's really about accessibility. That's about getting people into a safe place. And what should be happening, the injecting rooms in the rest of the world that are known to function, use those facilities to try and attract people into treatment, to attract them into a process of changing their drug using behaviour. And that balance is sometimes difficult to achieve. So sometimes people will um, be so accepting of an ongoing illicit drug use um, life that they would never um, even attempt to influence a person's behaviours. But I think that the most of the evidence and most of what mo those of us who are active clinicians in the field would say that every opportunity is an opportunity to engage someone in positive change. So accessibility is the first thing. Some kind of screening assessment is the next thing. Um, the basics that we need to understand is what does this person's problem mean? Why does this person present with a problem? Is the person uh, having problems with drugs because the drug dealer in their street has been arrested and they can't access drugs at the moment? And if, they, if, if a new drug dealer was there, they would be accessing drugs and they wouldn't be coming near services? Or have they just been arrested? Or have their children just been taken into care? And it's, and it's caused them to re review their lifestyle and to think about how they might make changes in their life. Um, and there's no one size fits all. Um, each individual, we need to understand why they're there. We also need to understand what substances they're using. Believe it or not, there are services that don't assess that uh, and where what they offer to people who present to addiction services is the same treatment, no matter what somebody uses. Um, that's one of the strong criticisms for methadone in the past, that low threshold methadone programs literally gave methadone to people, some of whom were not even opiate dependent. Um, certainly um, some of whom were not um, even using opioid drugs um, because it was the only service that was available. Likewise, there were health board areas where no methadone prescribing was available, where the only treatment available was to be sent to a, a detoxification facility, and that's the only intervention they got. Um, so our job is to understand the drugs they're using, understand the diagnosis. Is this person dependent or not? If they are dependent, are they dependent on drugs that we have got evidence-based interventions for? And then how do we make it easy for them to safely access those evidence-based interventions? The sobering thing is that the evidence-based interventions are largely to do with opioid dependency. They are detoxification drugs like lefexidine or reducing opioids or opioid replacement drugs like methadone, now buprenorphine and now um, diamorphine in those people who have not been able to um, successfully control their drug use uh, when they've got an optimised oral treatment. As the Orange Guideline points out, the treatment is also not just a drug. It's a drug with all the other elements that are required to help a person get their life sorted out. And that includes psychosocial interventions, behavioural change counselling, um, motivational interviewing, um, um, 
social care to help with housing, for example. There are models of care in, in some parts of the world where instead of getting methadone first, you get a house first. Um, because it's recognised that trying to help somebody overcome a substance use problem um, by just giving them a, a dose of methadone uh, is not going to help if they're going to then go and sleep in a street. So uh, it's called housing first, and there are examples of it in the UK, but it, uh, it's, it's, it's largely used in, in the USA. And these are kind of supported accommodation where people go in, get their own home, and then the treatment is delivered in their, in this more secure and safe setting. You can say similar things to do with finances. You can say similar things to do with the criminal justice in involvement that many of the people who have substance use problems are involved in. There's lots of ways that you can deliver a comprehensive package of care. Once you've agreed with someone what treatment they should be on and then embarked on that treatment, it should be delivered as quickly as possible. One of the criticisms of um, what I would argue are quite good services is the delays. And these delays are often systematic delays. So it's because of volume, pressure, rather than um, because of anything else. If we were a surgical treatment service, uh, we might say, I'm sorry, I can't see you for six months. But when I see you in six months, I'll be able to give you a hip replacement. For some reason, uh, if it's an addiction service, it's perceived more like perhaps a cancer service. But that means that we need to have the facilities and the systems in place that make sure that people find their way through the system very well. However, if we're going to embark on treating people with drugs like opioids or benzodiazepines or any of these drugs, we need to know that we can do that safely. And it's well recognised that one of the most dangerous times when someone comes into treatment is when you induct them onto treatment. Um, your risk of premature death actually goes up when you start on methadone treatment. Um, and there are things that clinicians have developed, supervised dispensing, observed first doses, and, and gradually increasing the dose in a tapered way to get to a maximum dose, all those kinds of things which can make that period much safer. Um, and uh, though, so, so good quality safe prescribing has got to be part of this overall comprehensive biopsychosocial kind of approach. The term that's often used, or it's not often used, but it's been used a lot in the last maybe five years, is the recovery-orientated system of care. Now, what that means is you have a system of care where everyone's job is to help a person progress. One element is the medical treatment, which is what psychiatrists and other doctors who are involved in specialist care would be involved in. But psychologists, pharmacists, social workers, specialist nurses and others will all be involved in delivering these other elements which make the, the care safe. And of course, that echoes what happens in mental health treatment generally, where everyone has their role. And uh, depending on the severity of the problem, the severity of the diagnosis, you maintain a degree of oversight of the person's care or you gradually reduce the degree of oversight. So that's that gives you an idea of what a pathway should look like. There's a few things that I think it's important that you also realise, though. I've used the word dogma once or twice when I've been talking to you here. There are those who are very dogmatic about substance misuse treatment. So there are people who will say, and, they, and some of them are quite um, well known in the field, that it is wrong to detoxify somebody if they are stable in treatment. So if they're stable on methadone, they're not using any drugs um, and they want to come off methadone, some doctors will refuse to do that. 
will say that somebody needs to be on 60 milligrams of methadone or they're not on an appropriate dose. There is no evidence that that's the case. What is clear is that if somebody comes off these drugs, if they detoxify from their opiate dependency and they do it in an unsafe and unorganised way um, and then they don't get the support to avoid relapse, there is an increased risk of premature death. But that's a much more nuanced conversation, isn't it? It's not, it's not about that's right and that's wrong. But there are many examples where um, you need to be aware that some doctors choose simply to offer one treatment and they are of the view that the evidence tells them that that's the treatment that should be offered. In reality, the evidence tells us that you should give the person the treatment that suits their needs that they want to engage with. And if you can engage them in that treatment and keep them engaged with that treatment, the risks um, of injecting, of drug-related harms, and also probably of premature death reduce. With all of that in mind, what lies in the future of addiction services in Scotland? Well, um, as you're probably aware, I'm sure it's one of the reasons that this podcast was even suggested. Um, a, the Scottish government has, I think, for the third time in the last 20 years, declared drug deaths a national emergency. Um, uh, again, one of the troubles about being an older person is that you remember these things. When the, the first Scottish executive, um, the first parliament um, invested in substance use services, there had been around 200 to 300 deaths. And this was perceived as, uh, as um, a situation that was an emergency. And the first Labour-led administration set itself a key performance indicator in its first strategy that it would reduce drug deaths by 25% over the next three years. And it would achieve that by investing in services, because that's what it was told would help. Um, and they did invest in services and drug deaths went up. Um, so that led to them asking for a review of the evidence. And um, that was done by a group uh, led by Dr. Deborah Zador, who's an Australian um, specialist in addiction, uh, who's worked around the UK and around the world. And uh, also many of the leading um, doctors in the field um, who would be recognised in the field. Um, that report came out in 2005, made a lot of recommendations most of which were not particularly taken forward. Um, Scotland has had a changing political world. So by, uh, by 2007, we now had an SNP government. So that had taken over from the Labour-led administration and they were keen to refresh drug strategy. And they were also um, keen to understand um, drug deaths and other things. And at that point, methadone had, had been um, seen as one of the problems uh, and the press were attacking methadone prescribing. So um, that was one of the first reviews I did, where I got the opportunity to review methadone prescribing in Scotland in the context of drug deaths. Uh, and we produced a report called Reducing Harm and Promoting Recovery, which um, emphasised the need for opioid replacement therapies, the drug methadone, but also the, the services that go alongside that to help people to progress and be safe improved commissioning, um, improved um, um, treatment delivery, responsiveness and so on. And that all got into the next um, Scottish strategy, which was called the Road to Recovery. And that came with continued funding 
a commitment to improved commissioning and actually national accountability, so targets for services to improve accessibility and so on. So drug deaths, methadone were a big priority. Strategy said so, investment happened, targets were set and progress happened. And that was 2007. As you know from the early part of this conversation, the trajectory continued to go up. Um, and by the time we got to 2011, um, you were in a situation where um, there were even more um, uh, um, drug deaths. Um, and uh, by this time, I was the chair of the Drug Strategy Delivery Commission. <laughs> uh, and we were asked to review what was happening and to give recommendations, which we did. Um, and, uh, and these recommendations were made. Some were followed through. Many were not. And then, of course, about three years ago, um, the drugs minister declared a national emergency and set up a thing called the Drug Deaths Task Force, which over two years has yet to report. Um, and now the latest reports show continuing increases in drug deaths. So that was a rather roundabout way of answering your question. I guess the future is that people are going to um, be exposed to the fact that this is a real problem and governments will recognise that it's a real problem and governments will say they are going to take action. That action is usually to ask for an expert opinion. That expert opinion gives them very clear um, roadmap, if you like, about how to progress. Sometimes they respond, usually they partially respond. And when they respond, they um, invest, um, but they um, don't make the major moves that need to happen. We are in a better situation if you were to if it wasn't for deaths, you would think that Scotland's drug services were in a much better place than they had been. As I said, in Tayside, we had three times as many people in treatment uh, in 15 years than we had in 2003. Um, and the services were able to demonstrate that people were better engaged, were receiving much more evidence-based treatment. We had psychological therapies, we had detox agencies, we had an inpatient facility. We had all of those things, but drug deaths have continued to go up. And I suppose that gets us right back to the beginning. This is complicated. The, people aren't dying because they're not getting services, although services could be better and services could be more available, could be more responsive to people's needs um, and could make sure that they reflect the evidence base that is captured in the orange guidelines. But drug deaths map to multiple deprivation and health inequalities. And my understanding is that all the measures of health inequalities in Scotland are widening. So um, I suspect that what we're really seeing is an artefact of health inequalities. Um, Harry Burns, who wrote the foreword for the Drug Strategy Delivery Commission final report in 2015, um, used to have a, 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 a presentation he did about health inequalities. And he showed that um, the, the most deprived in Scotland are dying as a result of specific types of problems. And they are largely drug and alcohol problems, mental health problems and violence. Um, and if we could deal with those things in those populations, we would probably significantly impact on the, 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 the evidence that we see as a result of health inequalities. But of course, health inequalities reflect inequalities in society, and that becomes a political issue. 
I would like to think that governments in Scotland will continue to focus on substance misuse, but the reality, uh, my experience of advising governments, is that they're more likely to respond to the Daily Mail. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr Kidd. That brings us to the end of this podcast. If you would like to gain CPD credits for this, please complete the short module test associated with this podcast.